you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them out. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. While you're doing that, you can multitask and get your core guide out. Place on the front to take notes, scriptures, and devotionals to help feed you through the week. And I will... Have any of you ever lost an argument with God? Yeah. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it sounds better to say you surrendered in an argument to God. I did that this morning. Um, <clears throat> I had a nice message that I thought was good, and uh, I just woke up really early this morning, and the argument was, Lord, my alarm clock hasn't gone off yet. And he said, get up. Oh, but the bed feels so nice. <laughs> I need to lay here just a little bit longer. You ever, you ever been poked by the Lord that way? Maybe it's just me on Sunday mornings, I don't know. I just have a sense that somebody's going to walk away from this morning with a changed life. I uh, got out of bed, went down, and I opened up my computer screen, a nice bluish glow, and uh, in my news feed was a, an article that was, I don't know, it, it just really disturbed me. It was out of the New York Times yesterday. The headline caught my attention. The headline is Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. Subtitle, My Religious Fundamentalist Childhood Was Built Around the Fear of Sin. Now my daughters don't even know the word. This uh, woman who wrote the article grew up in a a very strict Christian household. She was brought up in a home and in a church setting that focused primarily on the judgment of God. Thou shalt not. You don't do this. You don't think that way. You don't go to these places. You don't listen to this kind of music. And if you do, you're sinning and God's not going to love you. That, that's the home that she grew up in. She begins telling the story by um, talking about an event that she was taking her daughters to in a big city. And while they were uh, in the downtown area, they came across some of some people who were, well, let's just say they were trying to use the Bible as a bludgeon to convince people that they should turn or burn. Some of the signs had the word sin printed on them, and her daughter looked at her and said, Mama, what is sin? She didn't really know how to answer that question. She grew up in this household that had a very unhealthy understanding of sin, but I would say it goes a little further. She had a really unhealthy concept of who God is. She constantly thought that she was bad, that she would never measure up, that God couldn't love someone like her. So through some experiences in high school and into college and into her married life, she, she concluded that religion has nothing to do with goodness and there's a strong link between zealotry and hypocrisy. It's the picture of the church, the picture of Christ followers, the picture of God that this woman grew up with. She says she lost her faith. 
And she goes on and she says, after years of living a quote-unquote secular life, I realized that my notion of sin has evolved. Do you hear the language in that? Her notion of sin evolved. And so she is now, she says, I am raising my two daughters according to my, my, my moral code. She has no, uh, what I could conclude from reading this article is that she no longer had any definitive truth claims in her life. She was living and was raising her daughters to, to live with the attitude that whatever is right for me, whatever measures up to my moral code, is correct. And it occurred to me that I don't think it's just this woman who wrote this article in the Times yesterday. I th- think that that's a fair and accurate representation of a big percentage of our culture right now. That we don't want to have any definitive statements spoken into our life. We want to be a people of diversity and tolerance. And when you try to speak a definitive truth claim or a definitive statement, there's a little resistance. And so if that's you today, I'm sorry, but there's going to be a definitive truth claim. And I won't back away from it. So if you would stand with me, I want to read you a passage. In Luke chapter 2, Last week, we read about God pouring his Holy Spirit out on the disciples who had gathered. It's quite the event. Sound of a rushing wind, little tongues of fire that alighted on tops of the disciples' head, and the symbols that these people were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the disciples were were able to go out and speak the gospel message in languages that all the people in, who had gathered from all the known parts of the world, they had come to Jerusalem and they heard the message of Jesus in their own language. So when the Holy Spirit shows up, he draws a crowd. And they all gathered. And the accusation was that, hey, these guys are just drunk. So we're going to pick up our text right there. And so this is Luke, or excuse me, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So he's explaining the activity of the Holy Spirit by using a prophecy from Joel that these people would have been familiar with. He's bringing something from the past in the Old Testament into the present to show that what what was written, what was in the Scriptures, was now being fulfilled. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, 
Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Well, here's what David said about him. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. Notice how he's pulling something from the Old Testament again, and he's reinterpreting it in the present in light of the story of Jesus, and he's saying that what was written about and foretold way back then was actually a prophecy about Jesus. Because David wasn't writing about himself, because we can go visit his tomb and and we know he's there. He was writing about Jesus. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this definitive truth claim. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, you and me, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. If you look on the front of your bulletin, you might notice that I... I titled the message today, uh, It's a Sermon About a Sermon. It kind of feels like I'm preaching somebody else's message. Uh, But that's not entirely true. I want to preach a sermon about the sermon that, that Peter gave way back when. It was quite the message. I mean, this was Peter's first sermon. Do you remember the first time you had to speak in public? Did it go well? (laughs) Maybe it was a demonstration speech in class, or maybe your elementary school teacher wanted you to draw a poster of something, and then you had to stand up talk about it with your class. It doesn't matter what it was. Most of us can remember the first time we had to stand up and say something in public. If you look at 
the list of people's greatest fears, public speaking is usually right towards the top. It's not a real popular <laughs> or you know, desired thing to do. I don't want to have to speak in public. But here's Peter. He's, he's stepping out. It was quite the message that he preached. I give him an A. First, first time out of the gate, it's a pretty good message. In looking at this whole story, there's, a, there's a, several miracles that we could identify that happened that day. One of them is that when the, the Holy Spirit descended and, and filled these disciples, they, they experienced a miracle of the tongue. You understand that they, they were given words to say they had been kind of in hiding. They had been rather silent, but now with the infilling of the Holy Spirit, suddenly they had a miracle of the tongue and they had a story to tell. I mean, think about Peter. If we just look at Peter, half the time he was bold. He was, he was willing to stand up. When the rest of the disciples didn't have anything to say, we could count on Peter to answer the question whether it was right or wrong. He would just out with it. Well, do you remember that time? He had declared that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus affirmed him for that. Yes, Peter, you got that right. It didn't come from you yourself. It was something that was given to you by the Spirit. But Jesus, you are the Messiah. Just a few verses later, if you remember, when Jesus was talking about having to go to the cross, they were headed to Jerusalem, and that when they got there, that they were going to arrest him, that he was going to suffer, and that he was going to die. Well, this is right after Jesus, you are the Messiah. And Peter hears this out of Jesus' mouth, and he pulls the master aside, and he gives him what for? Jesus, this will never, ever, ever, ever happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. He said something really good and true in one moment, and then in the next moment, he just messes it up, blundering Peter. Then we spin forward a little bit in time, and it's the last week of Jesus' life. Peter makes the bold proclamation. Jesus I'm with you till the end, even if I have to die right alongside you. It's a claim of Peter, but only a short time later, after Jesus had already been arrested, taken to be questioned, I'll give Peter credit, he kind of Followed along in the shadows, staying out of sight. Somehow he snuck into the courtyard of the home where Jesus was being questioned. And there was a charcoal fire that was going over here, and he's huddled around that charcoal fire. Maid, servant, the house recognizes him as looking a little different than everybody else. Hey, don't you know Jesus? You, you're, you're Galilean, aren't you? No. No, I don't know that man. Three times, remember? Three times. Jesus, I will go with you to the end. I will even die right alongside you. I don't know that guy. I don't, you know, I don't know. I just have dark skin. I, you know, I don't, I don't know who he is. Peter is the guy 
tasked with preaching this message. I wouldn't put Peter at the top of the list. The f- people who would preach the first gospel message, at least when I think about it quickly, I wouldn't. But here he is. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He experienced the miracle of the tongue. He experienced the miracle of having something to say. He is suddenly able to speak coherently and persuasively about the story of Jesus. The disciples, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were were given a word to speak into the brokenness and the tragedy of the world that was unlike any other word the people had ever heard. When the, when the Holy Spirit showed up, the community of disciples stood up and they spoke. One moment they're lost in silence, the next, there they were, standing and proclaiming the glory and the story of Jesus. Peter attaches this whole thing to remember Joel. Remember that prophecy when God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people, not just a few people, not just the learned men in the religious system. All ages, young and old, both genders, male and female, no social class distinctions. Everybody is in on this. I will pour out my spirit on all people. We don't have a God who discriminates like that. It's for everybody. They will have a word to speak. And that word that they were given to speak is one that proclaims that there is a life that is stronger than death. It's a word that hope is deeper than despair. That every tear will be dried and that in the power of Christ's resurrection, death and pain will be no more. That's a pretty good word that the Holy Spirit has given them to speak out loud to the masses. But there was more than just a miracle of the tongue that day. There was more than just a miracle of being given a good word to speak. There was, there was a miracle of the ear that took place as well. The people heard in their own languages. You extend the ear into being able to hear and comprehend and, and understand. The, the people were opened to receive the message of Jesus. The miracle of something to say and the miracle of the ear, the miracle of being able to receive and understand. I think it teaches us that as the church, we ought to be willing to speak these words of life openly and freely. I also think that it teaches us, at least at the very least, it reminds us that we ought to consider the miracle of the ear and remember that we don't have it all down, that we're still listening for a fresh word from God, and we should remain open to hear and to receive Peter's sermon explains to the crowd what is, what is happening. And if you notice, the, the sermon was bookended by two questions. The, the first question right at the front was, people saw all this activity, they heard the word in their native language, and their question was, what does this mean? What does all this mean anyway? And the second question, when we get to the end of Peter's sermon, their, their question is, what should we do? What does this mean? Peter preaches. What should we do? See, some of the people were, there were curious about what had happened or what was happening some were very judgmental. They looked on these uh, 
followers of Jesus with scorn and disdain and oh, they're just, they're just drunk. I always laugh at this part of the text. It's okay to, to chuckle when you read scripture once in a while because there's some really funny stuff in here. I mean, these, <clears throat> you know, Peter stands up and he says, they're not drunk, it's too early in the morning for that. I mean, that's funny, people. It's okay to laugh. But it, I asked our board this question the other night, and this is a, this is a tough question to take. Don't take it the wrong way. Um, my question was, when is the last time someone accused you of being drunk for your faith? Maybe you don't like how that question sounds. That's okay. Maybe I'll rephrase it for you means the same thing. When was the last time your behavior, your Christian behavior, caused people to wonder what was going on in your life in regard to your faith? It's a kind of a shocking question. It makes us feel uncomfortable a little bit. What are you, what are you asking? What are, you, what are you trying to get at? Well, my observation is sometimes we're just too reserved in our faith. We'd rather creep around in the shadows. Yeah, I'm with that guy over there. Yeah, the one that you've been punching and he's bleeding and, and you know, all he's all black and blue now, I'm with that guy, but I'm in the shadow right here. And if you call me out on it, I may, I may act like Peter. Oh, I don't know that guy. I'm not with him. Maybe sometimes we're a little too reserved. Maybe, maybe because of the climate that we're in in society right now, where people just lob insults Maybe we're a little afraid. Maybe we're afraid to make definitive statements, definitive truth statements. So we're, we've resided ourselves to saying that we're just a little bit more comfortable to creep around in the shadows as followers of Jesus without exposing ourselves to scrutiny. Maybe we're a little bit inhibited in showing our faith in obvious ways. Maybe consider that being drunk in the Spirit as the disciples were accused of might loosen us up a little bit. I'm not telling you to be weird. I don't have to tell some of you that. <laughs> I'm weird too, don't worry about it. What I'm saying is that when you exhibit true, authentic Jesus behavior and you're not afraid or inhibited to do so, people will notice. People are drawn to that. People will wonder why you act in certain ways. See, when, you, when, when the Holy Spirit transforms your life and you start living in a new way, the question will come out, what does this mean? That's the question that you want people to ask of you when they look at your life. What does all of this mean? Because once they ask the question, that's permission for you to give them an answer. Yeah. What does this mean? Well, let me tell you. And Peter had words to say. The, Holy, the same Holy Spirit that filled Peter fills you, fills me. And so when somebody says, what does this mean? The Holy Spirit's going to give you an answer. And you tell the story of Jesus, and you tell the story of what Jesus has done for you and is doing for you in the present. You've just received an invitation to speak freely and to give a definitive truth statement. See, Peter gave the message, and for all of the reasons 
that we might want to discount Peter for being the first one to share this message, I, th I think after pondering it for a while, I think Peter might be the best person to deliver this first message because he knew the deep conviction of guilt more than anyone. He was the one in the shadows. Jesus, I'm going to go with you to death. I don't know that guy. Three times and the rooster crowed and it cut him to the heart. And they took Jesus away and they nailed him to the cross and for three days, Peter's wrestling with that guilt and that conviction that I let my master down. He even told me I would, and I said that I wouldn't, and I did. And he thinks that Jesus is gone, that there is never going to be any forgiveness or redemption for this. And then Jesus is raised from the dead, and it wasn't Peter that went to Jesus and said, I'm sorry. It was Jesus who came to Peter and said, I restore you. I love you. Maybe Peter's the right guy to preach this message. Because he, he dealt with this guilt, and he knew the full forgiveness and restoration that's available in Jesus Christ. So here's Peter delivering this message. He knows how good the news is and what it can do for you. And they ask him, what does it all mean? And he gives them an answer. He makes a very definitive statement. There's no room for misinterpreting Peter's message. He talked about the prophecy of Joel. He tells them about Jesus of Nazareth. He rehearses that for him in verses 22 through 24. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. You yourselves know of this. Many of them probably witnessed some of the signs and wonders and miracles of Jesus. You know about this guy. You've, you've heard about him. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Lots of people throughout history have used that verse in very wrong ways. It's propelled a lot of anti-Semitic thought, and that's not what Peter is saying. Peter's a Jew himself. He, he's speaking in a, in a global way. Humanity's sin put Jesus there. You, me, we're all implicated in it. That's the language that Peter is using here. So humans killed him. God came. We saw him do signs and wonders and miracles. But we rejected that. For some reason, that's not what we want. There's no way that you could possibly be God. So he was crucified, put to death. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He, he tells them this. Then he goes on and he quotes two passages from Psalms, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, to say that the risen Jesus that he's talking about is also the one who is now sitting at the right hand of God. That this Jesus is the one that the Old Testament had predicted that this Jesus is God's Messiah and he is the Lord and the Lord upon whose name we must call to be saved. Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God and he is the one who is pouring out the Spirit. This is the truth. And we're told, we're, we're told that the people were cut to the heart. In other words, it felt like a knife had entered their chest. Jesus has promised back in 
John, the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 8, that when the Spirit came, He would convict the world of sin. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? He would convict the world of, of sin. And the word convict there is the Greek word elenko. And it means, it's kind of a legal-sounding term. It means to cross-examine. To, to press you with evidence until your inconsistencies are exposed and you consent to the truth. The Holy Spirit will come to convict the world of sin. The Holy Spirit will come to get into your kitchen and remind you of things that you've said and that you've done. Not in a spirit to say, ha ha, I got you. But to help you come along and say, yeah, I did that. And that goes against what I now understand that God would want for me. It's not a, look how bad you are. You're going to hell. It's a, hey, you did this, but you can do better. You did this, but you can own it, and you can be forgiven. You did it, and God has forgiven you, and he wants to restore you into right relationship with him. So you can move away from this experience, and you can start living your life in a different direction. And the people believed Peter. They were deeply moved. Did you notice that they didn't become defensive? They didn't, you know, oh wait, wait a second, let's talk about this. They didn't rationalize their behavior away. They weren't defensive, they didn't rationalize anything. They realized that they had been wrong about Jesus. See, in Jesus' day, there were lots of different opinions and theories about who Jesus was. Some said he was a prophet, simply there to call people back to more faithful religious practice. Some people wanted him to be a political messiah, to come in and kick out the Romans and you know, get them out of here and be, a, be the conquering hero, free them from oppression. Others, you know, they just thought he was a heretic. You know, some even accused him of acting under the devil's power. Some people just saw him as a good moral teacher. Oh, yeah, he's, he's a nice guy. He says, he says some nice things. Nothing special. We can hear it from a whole bunch of other philosophers around here. People today have all sorts of opinions on who they think Jesus is and, and who really, who they want Jesus to be for them. And they all go back to the same sorts of things that the people thought of when he walked around the earth. Most people that I talk to, they don't have too much of an issue with Jesus. They think he was a nice, good guy. When you press people about why they resist Christianity, it's not so much that they resist Jesus, they just they look at some of his followers and they say, if that's who Jesus is, then I don't want anything. I don't want any part of that. That's a hard word for a church to hear. But I think it's the truth. Sometimes we're a little misguided. Not that our heart isn't trying to be in the right place, but maybe the expression of what we think we know just wounds and bruises people. To truly act like Jesus would, would be to be grace-filled and loving and welcoming. Let the Holy Spirit do that work of conviction. Let's promise the Holy Spirit will enter the world to convict the world of sin. People don't necessarily have a huge problem with Jesus. They can 
put him in the category of great prophet, but some, for some it's a stretch to think of Jesus as Lord and Savior and, and God. But Jesus, when he was here, he wasn't saying, listen to me, I'm a great teacher. When Jesus was here, he wasn't saying, pay attention to me, I'm a great prophet. When he was here, he was saying, I'm God in the flesh. I'm God in the flesh. And many people were troubled by his claim to be God. And they wanted him to keep quiet about it. You know, Jesus, can you just back off of that whole I'm God thing? Because if you keep saying that, they're going to crucify you. And they did. But God resurrected him. (laughs) And he appeared to many people of whom the disciples, Peter says, we are all witnesses of this. And if God resurrected Jesus, then what you and I think about him is less important than who he is. See, Jesus wouldn't conform to their expectations. He won't conform to yours either. So really what you're left with when you're wrestling with the whole Jesus question is is trying to decide whether Jesus is who he said he was. Is he God incarnate, the Messiah? Or is he just a liar of epic proportion? That's... That's really when it boils down to it. Is Jesus who he said he was? Or is he just a liar? And in Peter's sermon, he answers the question that Jesus is who he said he was. And the proof stacks up on the side that Jesus is who he said he was. You all saw all the signs and the wonders, and you saw him go be dead, to to be killed and crucified on that cross and put into the ground, and we are all witnesses. We know that God raised him from the dead, and he appeared to many people, and at this time and place, they probably could have gone and found some of those 500 people who would testify and say, yeah, I saw Jesus. I don't know how it happened, but I saw Jesus alive. Peter got up, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he made a definitive statement. He preached them the truth about Jesus Christ. That's refreshing to me in this day and age, where people don't want you to preach your version of the truth, they say. Refreshing for me to watch Peter have the courage to speak definitively like this. Verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter's not being intolerant. He's not anti-diversity here. He is simply saying, look, there is a God out there who understands what we all clearly know. That something is wrong with the world. That's not hard to know. You can look around. It's not a hard thing to to figure out. Something is wrong with the world, and God has appointed and sent his son Jesus to make it right. That's the message we got to preach. And God provides a way to be rescued from this corrupt generation. Peter said that in the resurrection, God vindicated Jesus, declaring and proving that Jesus was who he said he was, that Jesus is Lord, God Almighty, the one in whom all things were created, Jesus is the Christ. He's our Savior. Not one among many ways to God, but the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. And the people realized that they were part of that corrupt generation. They looked around the world and said, yeah, we're in trouble. We're lost in our sin. We're going the wrong direction. We recognize that our sin was part of what put Jesus on the cross. 
And the question that started off, what does this mean, was answered, and now at the end they say, what should we do? What should we do? When people ask you, what does this mean, and you tell them this story, sometimes, not every single time, sometimes people will say, what should we do? How do I move on from here? And Peter gives a pretty straightforward answer. He says, repent, turn around quite literally, change your mind, change your heart, change your attitude, repent. So what about you? What about you? Have you, have you opened your heart to this truth about Jesus? Do you, do you realize that, that your sin, that, that my sin, that, that our sin put Jesus on the cross? It was, it was your rebellion. It was our cheating. It was our refusal to do thing God's, things God's way. It was our selfishness, our pride, our hatred, all of those things that put Jesus on the cross. And do you realize that God used that cross so that you could be forgiven for all of those things? Do you realize that God loves you so much that he would send Jesus to die on that cross so that you can be forgiven? Peter said, repent and receive the forgiveness of your sins and be filled with the Holy Spirit. But he also said, repent and be baptized. Make a public declaration of your decision. Give public evidence of the allegiance of the allegiance that you now have to the Christian community. Baptism baptisms are one of my very favorite things to participate in. It wouldn't be right to end the service without giving you an opportunity to respond. Maybe it's for the first time responding and repenting and accepting, surrendering to God, asking Jesus to be the Lord of your life. It's a hard thing to do, but it's, it's, it's very simple. You only need to tell them that you're sorry, that you want to repent and turn around from your sins and live a different direction that you want to experience his forgiveness in your life and his transformation, that you want him to fill you with his spirit so that you have the strength and the power to move from this place in, in a different direction. And you say, I surrender. I, I've been trying to run my life on my own. I need you to be my king, my leader, my ruler, whatever word you want to put in there who has the place of highest authority in your life. And maybe you need to be baptized. If it's a new commitment you've made, I would say get baptized as soon as you can to make that public declaration that this is the way I'm going. Some of you in this room have been followers of Christ for decades, years. And for whatever reason, you've just pushed off the baptism thing. Most people that I talk to in that category, they have some pretty good, or at least what they think are good reasons for not being baptized, and I don't buy any of them. <laughs> I'll just put it right out there, and that's my own personal opinion. Well, it's not an essential thing to be saved. True. I don't think that you have to be baptized to be saved. But I would respond and say, Jesus submitted himself to baptism. If it's good enough for Jesus, I don't know what, I don't know what argument you have. 
It's a commandment of Jesus. Be baptized. I don't know which commandments we get to pick and choose. If Jesus says be baptized, I think maybe we ought to follow through what I sense that it boils down for most people who are just kicking it down the road. Oh, sometime, maybe. I think it's a little game with our pride. There's some measure of, uh, this is the one thing I can resist on and feel good about. I don't think so. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond. I'm going to pray here in a minute. Our, our worship band is going to come back and to lead us in um, a cleansing song, Create in Me a Clean Heart, um, after which we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a meal of forgiveness. Great way to close out the service this morning. So I'm going to ask, would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. It's pretty straightforward, the ways that you can respond to this. One, you can become a Christ follower. Two, you can say, I want to get baptized. I don't have a pool that I'm going to wheel out right now. Because you would say, well, I didn't, I didn't bring the right change of clothes, or I rode with somebody. I could get by all of those objections, but we won't try that. But next week, we're going to wheel out the baptistry. So what I want you to do is if you have been resisting or if maybe this is the first day that you are a follower of Christ, I, there's two notepads at the front with pens on them. If you want to be baptized while we're singing this song, would you just come forward? Just put your, would you write your name down in a way that I can get a hold of you this week? And we're wheeling that baptistry out and I hope I hope and pray that God has moved in your heart to say, yes, I'm in this thing. Peter said to the crowd when they said, what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized. God, thank you for this definitive truth statement that you are who you say you are. And there's proof of that. And so we submit ourselves to you today. Maybe we're nervous, anxious a little bit. Maybe we're, maybe we're a little bit angry and resistant. God, would you scrape that out of us? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you convict us of that? Would you help us to surrender to you? Thank you for your words to us. The way they can cut like a knife on the one hand and be so restorative and encouraging and loving on the other. Lord, create in us clean hearts. Renew a right spirit within us.